Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, hey, we're going to spend a couple moments in the Word, and uh, I want to dive into a series that we started last week entitled Fight Right, where we're talking about the armor of God, as the Apostle Paul lists it, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, let me catch you up to speed about what we talked about last week, because uh, I think it will really help set the framework for what we need to discuss today. Uh, rather than going through some of the armor that Paul mentions last week, we started by establishing what he establishes in this passage of Scripture, uh, and that is the reality of a spiritual battle, the fact that we are in the middle of a fight. He says in verse 12 that we do not fight against flesh and blood enemies, but that we fight against spiritual principalities and, and things in the unseen world, demonic forces, if you will. And I told you I didn't tell you that to scare you or to freak anybody out, but to establish the fact that we need to know we're in the middle of a fight, because if we don't understand what we're fighting against, then we cannot fight appropriately. We will not fight right. And, you know, if we could peel back the curtain in the spirit today, while we are fighting against a virus that we see with our eyes, while we are fighting against something that can be seen under a microscope and the effects seen in the lives of people and hopefully a, a vaccine that we'll be able to see in the weeks and months to come, if we could just peel back the curtain in the natural realm and see into the spirit, what we'd find is that we're not fighting a natural enemy, but we are fighting a very spiritual enemy, that this thing came from the pit of hell and it's nothing more than the devil's most recent ploy to steal and kill and destroy everything that God wants to do on this planet. So we needed to establish that up front so that we could fight appropriately. But now that we know what kind of fight we're in, we need to talk about how we go about engaging in this battle. What's the appropriate way to fight? What do we need to wear? No warrior would ever walk out onto a battlefield without the armor to fight his enemy. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, he says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. In other words, if we're going to be victorious in this fight, if we're going to be left standing as the victor at the end of it, then we need to be dressed appropriately. Uh, I'll say it like this. We need to dress for success because the last thing you'd want to do is walk out onto that battlefield being underdressed for the occasion. Has that ever happened to you before? You ever, you ever walked in somewhere or showed up to an event and discovered, oh my gosh, I am, I am underdressed for this. I am way underdressed for the occasion. It's a pretty embarrassing moment. Uh, last September, uh, my wife and I were invited to a wedding uh, for a couple in the church, Harry and Carmen. Hope you guys are watching. Hi, Harry. Hi, Carmen. Uh, and uh, it was an amazing invitation because for us, it felt rather significant. It was the first wedding we got to attend as pastors of the church. So we're like, oh, this is so cool. Someone in our church is getting married and we get to go. It was just kind of this really symbolic moment for us. And so when we got the invitation in the mail, um, I immediately RSVP'd for the wedding and, you know, chose the food and all that stuff and put it in our calendar so that we didn't double book ourselves. And as I closed out my computer, I failed to notice that on their website was some pretty specific instructions about what to expect when you went to the wedding, which included a dress code. I didn't see it. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I'm a pretty fashionable guy. At least I consider myself to be so. You know, I, I like to dress nice and I don't generally look like I don't take care of my clothing. Um, you know, if I could be faulted for anything, it's probably the fact that sometimes my jeans are a little too skinny for a guy my age. But, you know, I try to dress 
nice. And so the last thing I ever thought I would fail in as a lead pastor of a church was fashion. I figured I got fashion on lock, but maybe I might offend somebody or, you know, maybe the music's too loud for someone and they don't like it, but not fashion. But lo and behold, one of my first failures as a pastor was in the area of fashion. We show up to this wedding and I'm wearing the shirt you see today. Not a, not a bad shirt, right? It's a decent shirt. And I'm wearing a pair of uh, black slacks and, you know, they're a little shorter so that you can see just a touch of ankle, very fashionable. Uh, a pair of loafers, black loafers. And in fact, I, I think a, a picture is going to magically appear on your screen right now. And you'll see exactly how I looked for this wedding. My stunning wife standing next to me. And, you know, I'm doing my best to, to hold it down on my side of the fashion scale. But as we approach this wedding, it becomes fairly evident fast that I did not get the memo that this was a formal event. Everybody else in the wedding, all the guys are wearing suits and ties. And I'm the low life over there in the corner with a silk shirt on that looks kind of like a blouse and a pair of slacks. Like I am clearly underdressed for the occasion. And all these things start going through my mind. I'm like, okay, please don't introduce me to your parents as your pastor because you know, they're probably going to think, oh, great, the guy doesn't read, you know, and if he doesn't read the website, he probably doesn't read his Bible. And if he doesn't read his Bible, then of course, he's not going to be a good pastor. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, at best, they're going to probably think that I was offending their culture by not dressing. Like, I just didn't know what was happening. I was, I was, I felt absolutely mortified. And just about the time that I thought things could not get any worse than this, a couple of groomsmen, guys who attend our church, Galermi and Jordan, I love you so much. They walked up to me, and they said, hey, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, we just wanted to let you know that we had a running bet to see if you would show up in a silk shirt or if you would actually have read the directions and shown up in a suit like everybody else. I'm like, thanks, guys. Thanks for, thanks for betting on my success. <laughs> it was absolutely mortifying. It was horrible. Now, I had everything I needed. All the information was readily available to me so that I could prepare for the event. I just didn't read it. In fact, I even had all the equipment I needed to be successful. I, contrary to popular belief, I actually do own a suit. Yes, I could have worn it to the wedding. I just simply didn't prepare myself appropriately for the event. And I don't want what happened to me at a wedding to happen to you on a battlefield. I don't want you to show up as you're attempting to fight against the enemy underdressed and underprepared. I don't need you showing up with a blouse when you should be showing up in a suit or worse, showing up on the battlefield without the armor you need to be victorious. And so Paul, knowing that we are going to find ourselves in the spiritual battle, he begins to lay out exactly what kind of armor we should be wearing if we want to be victorious. And here's what he says in uh, verse 14. He says, Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, a couple of details here that I want to dive into before we get into this first item. Uh, Paul, as he lays out this armor, is describing the, the very same armor, the very same garb, if you will, that a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion would be wearing. In fact, he doesn't just list their armor, but he lists it out sequentially, the order in which they would have placed this armor on their body. Remember, the Apostle Paul in this season, he is a prisoner in Rome. He finds himself writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and to his son in the faith, Timothy. But while he's writing it, he is, he's in prison and he's surrounded by Roman guards and Roman soldiers. 
In fact, sometimes he was probably chained to a Roman soldier. And so he's become very familiar with the attire of a Roman soldier. And as he's watched the the soldiers begin to put this armor on and prepare themselves for battle and prepare themselves for the workday, he begins to see some spiritual parallels to what they're wearing and what we need to be wearing if we're going to be successful. And he starts it out by saying, okay, guys, step one, the first thing the Roman soldier does and the first thing you need to do, here's what we need to do. We need to gird up our loins with the belt of truth. There's a phrase you probably don't hear very often, right? Gird up your loins. When was the last time you looked at your teenage son as he was leaving the house to go hang out with his girlfriend and say, son, Tommy, please remember, gird up your loins before you go. Like, no one says that. It almost sounds inappropriate, right? Like, I don't know, if some guy invites you out and you're a single lady, he's like, hey, you want to go uh, catch a movie? Maybe get some dinner and we can gird up loins later? Like, that's probably not the guy you want to hang with. It sounds a little awkward, but let me assure you, it's not inappropriate, it's not awkward, but it is absolutely essential if you are going to be victorious in battle. See, for the Romans in the first century here, uh, they didn't have much fashion. They're pretty one-dimensional in their fashion sense. Uh, Their day-to-day garb uh, would have been a tunic, and a tunic was generally made of two pieces of cloth, wool, linen, whatever you chose, and they were sewn on the sides, and then a hole was cut at the top for your head, and then two holes were cut in the sides for your arms to come through, and It was basically like a a big giant pillowcase or a big bag, if you will. Kind of similar to what most of us are wearing right now as we shelter in place. Just one giant pillowcase. Who cares at this point, right? I'm sorry, it's probably too soon. But that's what they wore every single day. And and, uh, the tunic would make its way kind of below their knees, right at the top of their calf, maybe in the middle of their calf. It would hang low just so that they weren't left exposed. And that was fine for most of the day, walking around the city or walking around your house. But If they needed to free up their movement, if they needed to liberate their legs, if you will, because they needed to run, or if they needed to do some manual labor, or if they needed to fight, it wouldn't work very well having a tunic surrounding your legs. Imagine trying to run with a pillowcase around your knees or a pillowcase around your legs. It just wouldn't work very well. And so in order to liberate, in order to free their legs up so that they could fight and so that they could run, one would have to gird up their loins. They would have to take that tunic, they'd have to lift it up above their legs, and they would have to tuck it into their belt so that it could liberate them, so that they could be free. You can imagine a Roman soldier being out on the battlefield and not being able to run or not being able to, to fight appropriately because they were restricted down in their leg region. Like It would have been impossible for them to be victorious. That, that freedom was the difference between their victory or their defeat. And so knowing this, they were issued, standard issue for a Roman soldier was about a six-inch thick leather belt that would cinch up around their waist, and it would hold uh, the, the sheath for their sword, and it would be the anchor for their breastplate. But the, the main purpose of that belt was so that they could gird up their tunics, so that they could free their legs and be ready and prepared for battle. You could say, Without the belt, there was no freedom. It was restrictive. Now, it might seem insensitive or inappropriate to talk about something that would liberate movement right now and you know keep you from being restricted because by nature of our lifestyle right now, all of us 
are restricted. Like we want to be liberated, but we can't. But by law, we have to remain restricted. So it might make more sense to, you know, say, well, cinch up the waistband of your sweats as you take another trip to the kitchen or, you know, actually girdle yourselves up because we can't fit inside of our jeans any longer now that we've been doing nothing but eating for the last two months. Uh, But I promise you, it's not insensitive and it's not inappropriate for our setting. It's actually something that we must do if we're going to be victorious, to gird up our loins in the spirit, so to speak. Paul understands and he says, guys, If we're going to walk onto that battlefield and we're going to be victorious, if we're going to be left standing at the end of this thing, step one, you have got to gird up your loins with a belt. And not just any belt, but a belt called truth. The belt of truth. Which begs the question, what is truth? There's a question that kind of plagues our society right now. There's a question that we've all heard before. It's kind of this running conversation in our our day and age. It's a question that the church at large probably doesn't even want to touch with a a 10-foot pole because to assume that you could define truth, like that that would be contrary to what everybody else believes in our culture. There would be a massive fallout if a church was so arrogant as to assume that they could define truth. But being the antagonist that I love being so often, Uh, Allow me to take said pole and poke a little bit and kind of prod and stoke some coals because I think we have to open up this conversation a little bit. See, we live in a culture where where truth is subjective. We resist the idea that truth could be definitive or it could be objective, that it could be singular in nature. In fact, you've heard the phrase many times in our culture, find your truth. Live your truth. We celebrate the idea that people can find or live or discover whatever truth they want. It's the idea that freedom and liberation is found in literally doing and believing whatever you want to believe. If that's right for you, if that's what you want to believe for you, then by all means, you believe that and you are free to do so. That that is freeing and that is liberating to you as a human. And that's probably why so many people these days just tend to hate organized religion. You know, on a mass scale, it just seems to be disintegrating and fewer and fewer people are signing up for organized religion these days because not just Christianity, but any organized religion that would suggest that their way is the truth or their way is the right way. Well, that's in our culture, narrow-minded, it's bigoted, it's dogmatic, it's draconian, and it is restrictive. It would restrict It would restrict my life. It would restrict my thinking. I don't want to be restricted. I want to be free. I want to be be able to discover and live out my own truth. Well, the Apostle Paul suggests the exact opposite in this scripture. He doesn't suggest that truth is restrictive. In fact, he says truth is the very thing that liberates us. If truth is this belt that the Romans would gird gird their loins with, then truth was the very thing that got what was restrictive out of the way so that they could be liberated and free to move about. He's saying, guys, truth is actually the thing that sets you free. And if you feel like that is a, a you know a bad application of that scripture, I'm kind of twisting it a little bit to make a point. Well, then let me offer you another scripture that would prove the point even further, the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus himself says, You're my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth 
will liberate you. Both Jesus and Paul, they make it very clear. They're emphatic. Truth is not suggestive. It's not something that's subjective in nature. I don't, I don't have an idea or philosophy and your, my idea can be different than your idea. No, truth is definitive. It is objective in nature. Jesus didn't say, you'll find a truth and whatever truth you find, that one will set you free. He didn't say, you'll find your truth or his truth or her truth or the culture's truth. He said, then you will know the truth, a singular truth, and that truth will set you free. Listen, if you are a Christian, you call upon the name of Jesus. You have to vehemently oppose the idea that truth can sway and move with the tides of culture and the sands of culture, and you must be convinced in your heart that there is such a thing as immutable truth, that there is one singular truth that you're submitting your life to. But the question still begs to be asked, what is that truth? What truth am I submitting my life to? Where, where does one get this belt of truth? Is it next to the Gucci belt at the, at the, at the, at the department store? Like, where do I find this belt? What is truth? Well, I want to suggest to you that truth is not something, but rather truth is someone. Truth is not a concept. Truth is a person. When Jesus said, the truth will set you free, he was not speaking of some set of moral standards or a moral imperative or a collection of teachings that would set you free, this higher thinking that would set you free. If he was, then it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to even be on the planet at this moment. Because remember, he's speaking to Jewish people. And Jewish people were assumed to have the moral law, the moral imperative, the Mosaic law, where everybody lives by this standard. And if you live by this standard, it's going to set you free. You're going to be right with God. So if Jesus was referring to a set of teachings or if he was referring to a certain kind of lifestyle then he'd be peddling a gospel that his listeners would not have needed to hear. And nobody would have understood that more than the Apostle Paul. No one would have understood that a law can't set you free more than Paul. Because you remember, before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. And Saul was the, the, the most zealous of the Pharisees. He kept every single law in the book. He lived to the letter of the Mosaic law. So much so that when anyone opposed it, which he believed Christianity did, he would make his way to cities and imprison and even murder Christians because he, he wanted to be the strictest, the most adherent to the law. And it wasn't the law that set Saul free and that caused him to become Paul. It wasn't some moral obligation or a list of teachings that he lived by. Not at all. Remember what set Saul free? It was an encounter on the road to Damascus with the living Christ, with the truth himself, where suddenly he had to come face to face with the one he was opposing. And he realized in that moment that everything he thought was true was not true at all. And that there was a new truth taking center stage in his life. What Paul is suggesting here in Ephesians chapter six and what Jesus states emphatically in John chapter eight is that truth is not something, it is someone. And all of it points to Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the belt. Jesus is the one that we cinch up around the center of ourselves, and he holds everything together, and he liberates us and sets us free. 
Jesus said of himself in John chapter 14, verse six, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If you're looking for a way to live, it's Jesus. If you're looking for life and life to the fullest and meaning in all of this, it's Jesus. And if you're looking to find the truth, if you're looking to find the belt, then look no further than Jesus himself. He is the belt and he's the one who sets us free. So uh, let me ask you today, where are you at on the freedom scale right now? Where are you at with truth? Do you feel like you tend to sway with the ebb and flow and with the shifting sands of culture? Does your conviction change every time you have another conversation with somebody about what they believe truth to be? Do you find yourself in this current season wondering what is true and what's not true? As you scroll and as you troll and as you look and as you listen, are your emotions being governed by anything and everything but Jesus? Are you the kind of person who's trying to hold everything together right now only to see it completely crumble and fall apart and you're wondering why you can't seem to to find any stability? Well, maybe it's time for you to get a new belt. Maybe it's time for you to resolve, you know what? I need to come back to the simple truth of Jesus and my life centered and cinched up with him. Everything tucked into Jesus because in him, I will find the freedom that I'm truly looking for. And listen, there's something really cool about making Jesus the center of your life. There's something incredible about putting on this belt called truth, which is Jesus. Once you have truth, it becomes the filter that everything else must go through. And it will sift out every lie, everything toxic, anything that could take you out. It will sift all that out so that all that's left is what Jesus intends to be left, the truth in him. I've got a a filter with me right here. You might've heard me hit it earlier in the sermon. Sorry for that. But uh, this is a, a Berkey filter. And for those of you who know my wife, you know that um, she's very health conscious. She keeps a lot of stuff around the house that will keep us healthy. And this is one of those things. Um, when we lived in a city where there was, uh, I think chromium was the name of it in the water. Thank you, Aaron Brockovich, for ruining my wife. Uh, she decided that we needed to have one of these to filter out all of the toxins and all of the, the bad things in our water. And so we bought this way overpriced water filtration system that NGOs and you know disaster relief organizations use because it's it's the best there is out there. But what's interesting about this filter is if you throw a little bit of water in the top, there's these two cylinders in there. And uh, those two uh, charcoal cylinders, they, they begin to work on that water and they begin to take out all of the toxins and uh, all, all of the stuff that could be damaging to your body and all the parasites and all the chromiums and other ums that find their way into your water. You could literally pour lake water or you could pour sewage into this thing. But by the time it makes its way through the center, the filters that are located right here in the middle, and it makes its way down into the bottom chamber, all that's left is pure drinking water for you. And that's kind of how Jesus works. When you have Jesus at the center of your life, when, when he is the filter, when truth is the filter, all the stuff that tries to make its way in gets filtered out and all you're left with is the truth. And let me tell you why you need that kind of a filter in your life. There's probably people watching right now that are asking some questions like, 
Is this good or is this bad? Is this, is this toxic or is this healthy for me? What about this relationship? What about this opportunity? What about this moral standard? You know, what, what is in alignment with this faith that I, I profess? And when you don't know the answers to those questions and when you can't find chapter and verse to figure it out, guess what you need? You need a filter. You need truth to filter out every single lie that would, the enemy would use to take you out. Bible says in, in Romans chapter three, verse four, let God be true and everybody else a liar. That's what you get when you have the belt of truth. You get a filter that takes out every lie and every attempt of the enemy to try to seed things and plant things in your brain and plant things in your life that would, that would cause you to run away from truth and truth exposes it for what it truly is. Just another ploy of the enemy to take you out. So here's my invitation today. Buy a Berkey filter. No, here's my invitation to you today. It's time to put on that belt. Now, more than ever, we need to know the truth. We need to know what Jesus is saying about the situation we find ourselves in. We need to know what Jesus is saying about how we're supposed to live our lives right now. We need Jesus at the center of our lives. And I know that many of you have have already made that decision, but maybe even some of us who have been following Jesus for a little bit of time right now would not say he's at the center. Well, it's time to invite him back. This is the step one of all of this warfare. Just as the, the Roman soldier had to put on that belt first before anything else so that he could ensure he'd be free to fight, this is step one, making Jesus the center so that we are free to fight. And I wanna invite you to do that today. Whether you've been at this for a while or you're brand new or this is the first time, first time you've been here on one of our broadcasts, I wanna invite you to make Jesus the center of your life today. In fact, I wanna pray that with you. And if you need to do so, just follow along in this very simple prayer with me. Jesus, today, we thank you that you are truth, that you are unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today, I put my trust in you. There's so many other things that are vying for my attention, so many other things that are asking me to trust and put put my hope in it. But today, I set all those things aside, and I place you at the center of my life. Help me to follow you from this day forward. Be the filter for my mind. Be the filter for my heart. Be the filter for my life so that I only let those things in that you would want in my life in this season. And as I walk in your ways, help me to be your disciple from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.